Well, I don't know if uh, you've seen the movie, Jurassic Park. But there's kind of an interesting scene in that where this, you know, familiar with the whole concept of it, where they have this park where through genetics and whatnot, they're able to, you know, basically produce real live dinosaurs. Well, one of the guys in it, uh, this paleontologist who has devoted his entire life to the study of dinosaurs, of digging up bones, suddenly he comes face to face with a real live dinosaur. And he has all the knowledge, he has all the study, he has all the scientific uh, ideals of what a dinosaur is, but then when he comes face to face with a real dinosaur, he is absolutely awestruck and falls to his knees. There's no comparison to studying about it and then actually experiencing it uh, for yourself. For a lot of people, the spiritual life is pretty much the same. They read their Bible, they pick through it, they come to church, they give, they serve, they take communion, they stay moral, we sing, we worship, we study, but then to actually come face to face, though, with the living, holy God. You know, that's something I think that we don't think about all that much. It's pretty uh, non-threatening to open the Bible and read about the holiness of God, and yet to imagine coming face to face with your Creator. I mean face to face, right there in His presence. How does that strike you? We're going to continue today talking about learning to fear God rather than fearing man. We started last month this series that we call Giants in the Land that basically is giving us the tools of the beginning of how to understand growing in our fear of the Lord or our worship of the Lord and lessening our fear of people or our worship, our need of people. Now, you remember we started off talking about the whole idea of how the world tells us that we are to deal with our self-esteem or low self-esteem. And that is that we have low self-esteem which stems from sin or, or from shame. Shame comes from sin that's done to us or sin that we do. And the world's answer is simply to do a bunch of things that will make you feel better about yourself to try to cover or mask that shame. But you can't do it. It always follows you. To get rid of sin, shame, you have to get rid of sin. To get rid of sin, you have to place your faith in Jesus Christ. But we saw that even after we've placed our faith in Christ, we may have a great confidence in eternity, but yet in our daily lives, while we know that God loves us, we still feel like we need other people to love us. And so in some sense, we will worship God on Sundays and then worship people all throughout the week. That our need of people is just as strong as our perception of our need for God, that we see ourselves as like an empty love tank, and you have to fill me in order for me to feel good about myself. I need you to tell me something good. I need you to tell me I'm doing a great job. I need you to pat me on the back, to give me a hug, so that I feel good about me. But we saw last week, as we looked at what the Bible said our true needs are, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer very simply outlined them as physical, and spiritual, that you don't really find in the Bible that we have emotional needs. We have desires, godly desires perhaps, but 
in the way of needs, it's really pretty hard to find it biblically. Well, how do we need people then? Well, we saw that. We saw that we need people in order to help us fulfill the Great Commission, that we are all different parts of the body of Christ, and I can't say to you, I don't need you. You can't say to me, you don't need me. We need one another in order to mirror the image of God here on earth and to live out the kingdom of God, which you remember in the Lord's Prayer. It's how it begins. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And then at the end, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And later on in that chapter, Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So our purpose here on the planet is not to try to, you know, get all the stuff that we're longing for at Christmas. Our purpose is instead to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're not to fear people, but we are to fear God, well, how do we do that? Well, that's what I'd like for us to talk about this morning, how to gain a healthy, biblical fear of the Lord. So let's look together at a great place for that, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6. The wisest man that ever stood on the planet was Jesus Christ. Runner-up to Jesus would have to be, according to the Bible's own testimony, Solomon. And Solomon said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He starts out his book of Proverbs, How to Live Life Wisely, and that is his premise. That's his whole theme. You want to live a wise life? Fear the Lord. Interestingly, at the end of Ecclesiastes, he comes to the same conclusion. He's tried it all the other way to live a life that's satisfying, and Solomon basically comes down to the conclusion, when all is done, he says, here it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. Well, how do we fear the Lord? How do we have a healthy, biblical, God-fearing attitude? Especially when you turn through the scriptures a lot of times, in the, like in the New Testament, Jesus will say, fear not. What does it mean to fear God if we're told that we're not to be afraid of him? What does fear mean then? Well, in Isaiah 6, we come face to face, or through Isaiah, we come face to face with the holiness of the Lord. And let's read this together, the first four verses. Look at this while I read. Isaiah says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Wow, what an awesome picture of the holiness and the glory of God. It says that we see him in the temple, that Isaiah sees him in the temple. And in Isaiah's day, it would have been Solomon's temple still standing, which in itself was a marvelous thing to look at. And so to picture the Lord inside of Solomon's temple, to picture the Lord in the temple, 
and we're told, given a description of what it is that Isaiah sees when he sees the Lord sitting. First of all, he's on a throne. He is high and he is exalted, and there are a bunch of angels, we're told, there with him. And particularly, we're told that they are seraphim. The little I-M on the end of words means that it's plural. A seraph is one. A seraphim means that there's more than one. Seraphim or cherubim. Uh, cherub is an angel. You may be familiar with that. Cherubim means more than one angel. And you notice that as you read throughout the Old Testament, the little I-M on the end of stuff means that there's more than one. There's more than one angel standing above him, and it says that they, eat, they have six wings. Uh, they cover their face and their feet, which is a sign of humility. And practically, then, they are flying uh, with another, or this particular one is. And there is one who calls out. And look at what he says. He says, holy, holy, holy. Now, we're so familiar with that from the song that we sing. Why in the world would they say it three times? Well, some say, and I don't disagree, there's certainly room for it, that this is a reference to the Trinity, that there are three persons in the Trinity, and so there's three holies there. Uh, and that's fine, especially later on when the Lord himself says, who will go for us? There is the, ideal, the idea of plurality there in God, in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it seems here with this verse that the whole earth being full of his glory that it's, it's almost like holy piled on holy piled on holy. It's just like one isn't sufficient to describe how holy God is. That he is so holy. We've got to say it three times. He is the Lord of hosts. Host means angels. It refers to the angelic being. Literally, it means like an army, which are the angels of God. And the Lord of the, these angels who are there in his presence... He is a God who is holy. In fact, it's not just that his, his glory and his holiness with the smoke and everything filling the temple, but his, whole, his glory fills the entire earth. And just one of these seraphs, notice it's just one, it says, that's doing the talking here. One called out to another. Just one of these voices. We're told that the foundations of the thresholds trembled. And this is just the voice of one angel. And the whole place is shaking and trembling at the holiness of God. This shows these angels are taking an attitude of humility. That they're covering their face, their feet. And they don't even have any sin to hide in the presence of God. In the book of Revelation, John actually also sees similar creatures and they, too, have six wings, and they also say, Holy, holy, holy. Except they say, Is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. He is eternal past, He is present, and He is eternal future. This God is not only holy throughout the earth, throughout the temple, throughout the earth, but He is holy throughout all eternity. And notice what these holy angels are focusing on. They are not focusing on themselves. In fact, all they even say about themselves is that the Lord, our Lord, is holy. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of angels is holy. And that's really all they say about us. Their focus 
is on the Lord. It's on praising God. But Isaiah has a totally different focus. Look at what he is focusing on. Verse 6, uh, verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We read the reference earlier to King Uzziah. You ever wondered why that it refers to the year of King Uzziah's death? Um, well, first of all, Uzziah was one of those good kings that kind of went sour at the end of his reign. He had a long reign, about 50 years. And Isaiah has this in his mind, obviously when he's writing, that we have King Uzziah's death, a godly king who ended bad, but 50-year reign, and he dies. And now Isaiah says, and I have seen the king who is eternal. Not only that, why did Uzziah die? Remember why Uzziah died? Well, because having gone bad, the Lord disciplined Uzziah with leprosy. And he died as a result of his sin. Now, why is that significant? Because now here Isaiah is in the presence of the same holy God who took Uzziah's life because of his sin. And Isaiah says, I'm in the presence of this holy God with my sin. Woe is me. In fact, the word there, woe, is the word oi. Woe is me, for I am ruined, meaning I am done. It is over for me. Because I am in the presence of the Holy God, and I am a sinner, and I live among sinners, and God is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah is not the first person in the Bible to have this kind of a reaction at the holiness of God. Who was the very first one to have a problem with the presence of God? Adam. We didn't have to start long and go far at all, did we? Adam and Eve, as soon as they had sin in the presence of God, what did they do? They got out of the presence of God. They tried to hide because sin in the presence of God is not a comfortable place to be. If you read further through the scriptures, you see that the Lord told Moses, God told Moses, you can't see my face for no man can see me and live. Gideon saw the angel of the Lord and Gideon said, alas, Lord God, for now I have seen the Lord face to face. Gideon expected to die. Samson's parents, at the revelation of how Samson were, was to be born, Samson's dad said, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. Ezekiel was by a river, had the same reaction. He fell to the ground in a coil of terror. The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the veil of Jesus' flesh, in some sense, is taken away, and they finally saw Jesus Christ for who he really was in all his glory, and the disciples hit the dirt in terror. John, in the book of Revelation, came into a holy angel, and John hit the dirt in terror. One of the best pictures of this is in Exodus 19. Just look at the screen and let me read to you at what happened when the nation Israel first came face to face with the holiness of God, when they actually saw the presence of God up on Mount Sinai. And according to tradition, go ahead and change it. Uh, 
this, that's Mount Sinai there in the background, so you can just kind of picture lightning and all the stuff that's going on on this mountain, and this plain right here in the front is where all the millions of Jews would have been camping and beholding the awesome power of God descending on this mountain behind. Let me read this. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Imagine millions of people trembling. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Remember, you can't see God. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Then in chapter 20 we read, And all the people perceived the thunder, and the lightning flashes, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And they got a great audiovisual lesson of what that meant. And when the dust cleared, what was left? But God's law written on stone. What seemed kind of anticlimactic, that all this glory and all this awesome power, and then Moses comes out with these tablets that are no less glorious because this reveals the holy standard by which you are now to live. God told them, I am holy, therefore you be holy, and here's how you do it with these commandments. Our problem, though, is a lot of times we view ourselves in the image of God, but as mildly flawed in the image of God, not as in total desperate spiritual need. You ever tried to live the Ten Commandments just in one day? You can't do it. And James says you break one, you might as well have broken the whole thing. You're just as guilty breaking one as you've broken all ten. We think we had a good day because we didn't murder somebody, we didn't commit adultery today, we didn't tell any dirty jokes, and we focus on our external actions rather than our internal motivations. We live in a world that tells us how to do stuff. We're only mildly flawed, so all you need to know is how to. I looked at Barnes & Noble's website and just typed in how to. Guess how many books I found? Single titles on how to. Over 35,000 how-to books, self-help books. We have. We live in a world that tells us how to do it by ourselves, as if there's no need to trust God, because if God's really just kind of helping us anyway, we'll let him know when we need him. 
Why is this flawed reasoning? Well, as we saw, remember a couple of weeks ago in Jeremiah 17, our heart is deceptively wicked. We don't know what we need. We don't know what we want. We must trust in what God says about us. We were never designed to live on just bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is why that after this awesome display of power, what is there but the word of God by which you are now to live and to be holy, 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 as God is holy. Give us this day our daily bread. Well, do you really need God to supply your physical needs? Forgive us our debts. Do you really see your need of God to forgive you of your sins? You will fear and worship the Lord only if you feel that you need to, if you have a need. I had a woman tell me one time, she said, I want a God I can touch. You know, I was trying, she was telling me how sorry her life was, and I was trying to console her with the Lord. And she says, I want a God I can touch. I want a God I can talk to and who will talk back to me. And later I thought about it. You know, you really don't want to be in the presence of God. Because what happens when you bring your sin into the presence of a God who is absolutely and totally holy? It is not the... the the kind of experience that, that you're wanting. It is a time of terror if you bring sin into the presence of a God who is holy. All throughout Scripture we see this, that you fall to the ground in a coil of terror. This is part of what it means to have a fear of the Lord. And here's the point. When you bring your sin into the presence of God, you will wish you hadn't. Even the angels who were totally holy. Isaiah saw these angels all around the throne. Even the angels who had no sin were humble in God's presence, covered their eyes, covered their feet, and called him Lord. And Isaiah fully expected to be killed because he brought his sin into the presence of God. But look what happens now in verse 6. Isaiah 6, 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. What was Isaiah's problem about being in the presence of God? It was that he had unclean lips. So what did the seraphim do but took a coal from the altar and touched Isaiah's lips? Why is it significant that this coal was taken from the altar? What happens on the altar? Remember the temple? What happens at the altar? But that sacrifices are made to atone for sin. In other words, this angel brings to Isaiah's lips the only means by which Isaiah could have his sins forgiven and thus to stay in the presence of a holy God by the death of a sacrifice. In their day, it was an animal that was killed. But in our day, all those animals foreshadowed the death of the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross to pay for our sins. And so for any of us to come into the presence of a God who is absolutely holy, without having placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can expect this kind of a reaction. And incidentally, have you really thought about that lately? It's so wonderful to be reminded of it because we know it, but we don't really think about it. That is that one day you will stand 
in the presence of a God, your God, who is absolutely holy. And you will be right in his presence and be able to see his face. How are you going to respond to that? To a person, we are told that the knee will bow. Some will bow out of terror. Some will bow out of worship. But we will bow all before him. We will all have the fear of the Lord. But interestingly, from a different perspective, if you don't have Jesus Christ, your fear of the Lord is going to be terror. If you do have Jesus Christ, then there is another kind of a fear of the Lord. It is what we mean when we say God-fearing. Interestingly, if you read in the New Testament, the word fear, we get the word phobia from it. It means not only to uh, be terrified of something, but a totally different uh, translation of it means to respect. In fact, in the passage where it talks about that a, a woman, a wife, is to respect her husband, it's the word originally fear. And it doesn't mean she's to be terrified of her husband, but she is to respect him because of his position. It's the same idea with the Lord. It's not that we come into his presence now terrified. Why should we be terrified if we're not bringing sin into his presence? Jesus Christ is taking care of that. So what is the fear of the Lord that we now bring? Well, it's still an awareness that our sins have been forgiven, but that awareness now causes us to worship. Isaiah's unclean lips were forgiven because of the sacrifice. There's a principle that we glean from what the angels are focusing on and what Isaiah, prior to his sin being forgiven, focused on. And it's this, that God has completely filled us with his love so that we may delight in him. God does not fill us with his love so that we'll feel good about ourselves. That's kind of a byproduct of the goal. That's not the goal. The goal is that we may delight in him. The goal is that we may give him glory and honor. God fills us with his love so that we may delight in him. Which is what the seraphim were doing, wasn't it? Saying, holy, holy, holy. They were focusing on the Lord, not themselves. They didn't have any sin to worry about. What was Isaiah's focus when he was there? Himself. Woe is me. Because I'm a sinner. And then the sin problem is removed. And it doesn't take much to guess then what Isaiah's focus is going to become. Not himself but now the Lord. The whole purpose, I think, here is on whom you desire to delight. What I want to talk to you about, fearing the Lord and not fearing people. Whom are you going to delight in? Are you going to delight in people or are you going to delight in the Lord? If you need Jesus Christ to delight in yourself, that is, you need Jesus so that you feel better about yourself, to delight in you, then I really think that you're going to be struggling for quite some time because the goal is not for you to feel good about yourself. Again, that's a byproduct. That just happens kind of as an hors d'oeuvre or as a side plate to the real meal, which is to delight in the Lord and not in yourself. You ever feel like God is distant no matter what you do? You feel like the Lord is just distant from you? If you feel that way, then I want to take a wild guess that there are two things that you need to repent from. Two things that you need to repent from. The first is this. You need to repent from the idea that your sins are bigger than God's forgiveness. 
Repent of the idea that your sins are bigger than God's forgiveness. Because what did the angel say here? But that your sin is forgiven. It's taken away. And secondly, you need to repent from seeking God in order to feel better about yourself. Which a lot of times is what we'll do. We'll come to him and we'll pray so that we feel better about us. That is not why we ought to seek the Lord. We are to seek the Lord in order to delight in Him, to give Him glory. Remember what we talked about last week? You wake up and you say, not, Lord, how can I meet my needs today, but rather, Lord, how can I glorify you? Jesus said, don't seek all the things that the pagans seek. The Lord knows that you need them, but first seek His kingdom and His righteousness, and then all these other things will be added. That's a side issue. It's not the main issue. The main issue is, in whom are you going to delight? Don't seek God in order to feel better about yourself. And you know what happens when you do this? As you get a greater sense of how holy God is in your life, when you get a great sense of the holiness of God, ironically, you get also a greater sense of what a sinner you are. You thought you were a sinner when you trusted Christ. And then you read your Bible and you found out you were twice the sinner you thought you were. And the, the longer you progress in the spiritual life, the more you will be convinced that you are a bigger sinner than you were than when you started. And you say, well, boy, that sounds terrible. It's terrible if your goal is to feel better about yourself. But if instead you will realize, wow, I am such a sinner, and yet all of that sin has been removed and placed on Jesus Christ, what should that produce but delight in Him? You see, when you grow in your understanding that you are a sinner, you should grow not in poor self-esteem, but you should grow and delight in the God who loved you so much that he would save a sinner like you. The fear of the Lord has two different slants stemming on whether or not you're bringing sin into the presence of God. Bring sin into God's presence, the fear of the Lord is terror. You bring forgiveness of sin into God's presence, the fear of the Lord is worship. There's a saying, and I tried to find out who it was that, that said it originally, but I couldn't locate it. But the saying is this, that the person who fears God fears nothing else. What a great kernel of truth. And in some sense, that's, that's the way you could take away from this whole series, that if you fear God, you'll fear nothing else. The crux of what we're talking about today. If you truly fear the Lord, then you have no need to fear people in order to feel good about yourself. Your response when God takes away your sin is you quit being so concerned about you. Forgiveness frees you from being concerned about you. Now you can be concerned about God's work, which, to no shock, is exactly what happens now. Look at verse 8. Then, Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord. Now it's not an, just an angel talking. Now it's the Lord himself. Voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. You see, he was eager once his sins had been removed, now to quit focusing on Isaiah, but now to focus on the Lord and the Lord's work. So if you don't have a great passion to serve God, 
my bet is that you're still kind of hung up on these things that we've been talking about as opposed to being totally sold out to the idea that you know what you're forgiven you don't have to fear people serve the Lord who has died for your sins or you could say it this way as your astonishment of God's holiness grows you develop an immense passion to serve him Vince Gill once talked about a time that he met a young cancer patient named Tara. And this is what he said. I'll just read word for word. He said, I remember meeting her in the hospital after playing golf all day, and I had a big pink sunburned nose. Tara had no hair, but she had the prettiest smile you ever saw in your life. She said, have you been out in the sun all day? I told her, yes, I've been playing golf. Did you wear sunscreen? She asked. Well, no, he said. And then he says, the look on her face took me to my knees. It was like, I'm here struggling for my life, and you're not smart enough to wear sunscreen. Then she asked, well, do you read your Bible every day? Vince Gill asked him this. He said, my no got the same withering look. Suffice it to say, since that day, I've been wearing sunscreen and reading my Bible just a bit more. How do you gain a fear of the Lord? Well, let's go back to Sinai. When the dust cleared, when the lightning had gone, when the smoke had gone, what was left? God's Word, the tablets. How do you gain a fear of the Lord? You spend time reading about it. You spend time in this book. You say, well, boy, that's pretty simple. Well, that's great. But if you have that kind of a mindset when you're reading, that you don't read this book simply in order to say, what is this going to do for me, for me, for me? But you read this book and say, what is this teaching me? about God, which is why I brought us to Isaiah 6, because all of Isaiah 6, I think, is a great little, in a nutshell, what the spiritual life is. But focusing on yourself. Jesus died for your sins, all right? You got that taken care of? Let's move along. Now, here am I, send me. Get a grasp of a God who is holy. Your eagerness is therefore going to be to serve Him.